Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. David, thank you very much for reading for us. Good morning. It's good to have you here. Uh, Well done for squeezing in this morning. I do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Matthew 21. It's page 990 in the Pew Bibles. Let's pray again as we turn back to God's word. Father, we do need your help this morning. Our hearts so quickly turning aside, so often restless and rebellious. Please help us by your spirit. As we look at King Jesus again this morning, please draw our hearts back to love him, to serve him, to follow him. And we know we can't do that on our own. And so we ask for your spirit to help us again this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of two men who went to visit a particularly famous art gallery packed full of treasures of art. Um, But as these two men walked around the gallery, they were overheard to say um, various things about the art on the wall, which were rather disparaging. Um, They were heard laughing about the quality of the art, and they were being very dismissive about the, the artists and their technique and the end results. And they went on and on joking about what they saw on the walls, such that at one point, finally, the old curator of the museum shuffled up behind the two men and he said, gentlemen, in this gallery, it is not the quality of the art that is in question, rather the quality of those who come to view it. And then he walked off. 
I don't know if the story is true or not, but it's remarkably similar to what we find happening in these pages of Matthew. We're in the middle of a little series in Matthew's gospel. We find that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for the final time. And the parable before us this morning comes right in the middle of a titanic clash between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And they think they have Jesus on trial. So just before our reading, um, they question his authority back in the, the first part of Matthew 21. Later on in Matthew 22, they challenge him over uh, issues of tax and of marriage and of the law. And they think they've got him on the run. And we know how it ends. They end up accusing him of uh, blasphemy. They put him on trial and they kill him. But like the art gallery, we discover that the group who are really on trial don't realize it is them. You see, it is Jesus who is sitting in the judge's seat. And it is the Jewish leaders who are on trial in the dock as they clash with Jesus. And the parable before us this morning exposes their rejection of Jesus. This morning, we have a front row seat in the courtroom gallery as we watch this trial unfold between Jesus and these Jewish leaders. And although it is an ancient trial, we would do well to listen with some urgency. Yes, in part because we see here why God is completely right to judge these Jewish leaders, but also because we discovered that their rejection of Jesus was not a, a question of scientific discovery or um, evidence against his claims or some academic insight or philosophical um, rationale. No, the reason why they reject Jesus is a matter of the heart. And as we watch the human heart being exposed, we see in part why people go on rejecting Jesus today. And we also get a warning about the potential of our own hearts with regards to Jesus. So come and watch this trial unfold before us. And so come and watch the human heart being exposed. The Jewish leaders reject Jesus, first of all, because they are ungrateful. The parable begins, verse 33, with the kind of scene we might find in a Country Life magazine, or perhaps, if we're fortunate enough, on a holiday in the south of France. There, on a, on a hillside, there's a vineyard basking in the warm sunshine. And it's not just any vineyard. This is a cared for and cherished vineyard. The owner has taken care to build a wall around it. Farmers, I gather, spend huge amounts of their time repairing and building fences to keep their their farms safe. But this particular vineyard comes with a pre-built wall. Wonderful. There's a wine press. No more carrying the grapes down to the local village wine press at harvest time. You've got your own wine press on site. There's a watchtower for protection. The point is, this is one well-cared-for vineyard. It is a picture of what God, the owner of the vineyard, has done for his people, Israel. I say that because back in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 5 Verse 7, we read this. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. It's a picture of God and his people. Over many seasons, many centuries, God has wonderfully cared for his chosen people, given them what they need to flourish and prosper and to grow. How have the people responded? Well, verse 34, 
When the harvest time approached, he, the owner, sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. The tenants, I think, are the leaders of Israel. The servants almost certainly are the prophets that God has sent to his people over the centuries looking for the right fruit, the right response to God of repentance and faith in him. It's a perfectly reasonable request from God the owner to his people. He's been kind and generous to them again and again and yet they kill the servants, the prophets. I've got a little, well we've got a little flat uh, down south in Oxford and uh, we rent it out and uh, we actually have wonderful tenants, a couple, they're, they're brilliant. They look after the flat very well and they, they pay their rent on time, no hassle at all. But just imagine if in the future a moment came when they refused to pay their rent. And it happened after a number of months, nothing came through the bank transfers. I'd have to jump on the M1 down to Oxford to check out what was going on. Imagine if when I arrived in the flats, they captured me and they beat me and they killed me. It's all very dramatic, isn't it? But uh, yeah, imagine. Um, Now, uh, friends and family, Lorna, I would hope that they would be angry and upset by my treatment. Um, They'd be right to kind of want justice and say, hang on, this isn't right. This is terrible. But look at what God does, the owner. He sends another batch of people, verse 36. He sent other servants to them more than the first. This is remarkable grace from God the vineyard owner. He's given these tenants lots of opportunities to change their mind and to turn around. Far more grace than I think we would offer. Yet look at their response. The tenants treated them in the same way. If you like, they take God's gracious provision and care and kindness and they throw it back in his face. And so our first point is this, the Jewish leaders reject Jesus because they are ungrateful. If you like, they they want all the gifts that come from being part of God's people, but they don't want the giver. They want the provision, but not the provider. We see this happening in little children over Christmas sometimes. When they get a present, they uh, often ignore the person who gave it to them, and they just get completely zoomed in on on the presents, and they unwrap it, and they play with it, and they've forgotten who gave it to them. It's okay with children, we laugh at it at times at Christmas time, but when it comes to God and his people rejecting him, it's a terrible thing. Of course, this is not just a Jewish problem. It is a human problem. In the beginning, God placed humanity not in a vineyard, but in a garden, a place of remarkable blessing, of beauty. All that we needed was there in the garden for Adam and Eve. How did they respond? They were ungrateful, pushing back against God. And although we live now in a fallen world, yet there is so much about this world that is good and right. We live in a blessed world in so many ways. Thinking of us living here today, many of us enjoying jobs and families, a roof over our heads, peace, relative safety. Hugely blessed to live in this part of the world in this time and place. And yet when our friend won't come to the carol service, or we start chatting to a colleague about Jesus, and they just don't want to know, Why is that? Well, at least in part, it is because the human heart is so quickly ungrateful for all that God has done for his world. 
That's our first point. The leaders reject Jesus because they are ungrateful. But next, we see the leaders reject Jesus because they are rebellious. It is, it's hard to read what happens next. Verse 37. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. This is not a case of mistaken identity. The tenants kill the son precisely because they recognize who he is, the son, the heir. And when we remember how this parable relates to the reality of Jesus and the Jews, it takes your breath away, doesn't it? The Jews are trying to kill Jesus, not because they are confused about who he is, but precisely because they know exactly who he is. They know he is the son. They see in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of God who has come into the world, and they think now is their chance to kill the son. It is shocking, isn't it? But we are seeing here, the leaders reject Jesus because they are rebellious. Again, this is not a Jewish problem, it is a human problem. Remember back in the garden, why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit? Because they wanted to be like God. In fact, they wanted to sit in his seat and rule the world without him. And ever since then, that has been what humanity has been doing with God. Many of you know that we have a dog, and uh, I hate to admit this publicly, but uh, we let her sit on the sofa. Um, It was never the plan early on. Um, I don't know how it's happened, but somehow over the years, there she is on the sofa almost every day. I'm sorry about that. Um, But uh, we've noticed something peculiar happening with our dog on the sofa. When we have been sitting on the sofa for a while, and we get up to, I don't know, make a cup of tea... Almost every time we come back, and there in our seat is the dog. She has jumped in to sit exactly where we had been sitting. And initially we thought it was kind of cute and endearing, you know, wanting, wanting to be near us. But we discovered actually after a while it wasn't cute and endearing. She, she was trying to nick our spot, the little, little rascal. You see, she's trying to kind of push us out of the way and, and sit where we sat. Look, it's a silly illustration in many ways. It doesn't really matter when it comes to dogs and sofas. But when we realize that that is exactly what each one of us is trying to do with God, we're trying to nick his place in the world and sit in his seat, well, it matters a very great deal. Look at what the tenants say in verse 38. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. They want what belongs to God. And they're trying to pull off the biggest coup in the history of the world. And for so many people today, it's not because they are confused about Jesus. It is precisely because they know who he is that they reject him. I think of one person I knew a little while ago who um, began to look into Christian things, not a Christian, uh, spent a number of weeks coming and looking at a gospel and looking at Jesus. And in many ways, he seemed very interested in what he was reading. Kept coming back week after week. But then suddenly, at one point, he said, I'm not coming back. I've had enough. And uh, when asked why, he was very honest actually. He said, um, I'm starting to understand what Christianity is about. 
I'm starting to realize that you think that Jesus is God, that he's the Lord of the world. And if it's true, I just don't want that to be what the world is like. I just don't want to have to live my life submitting to, to, to Jesus. And he stopped coming. Very honest, but it is rebellion. You see, rejection of Jesus is not a scientific conclusion. It is not a philosophical insight. It is a heart reaction. It is rebellion against God himself. And as we invite people to carol services, even today, and they say, no, thank you. Or if they do come, and then afterwards, they're very critical of what they heard about Jesus. Very dismissive of the story of Christmas. Well, it's because as humans, we have rebellious hearts. The leaders reject Jesus because they are rebellious. Finally, the leaders reject Jesus because they are short-sighted. In many ways, the evidence is in. The trial is coming to its conclusion. And Judge Jesus asks the defendants what should be done. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And then remarkably, the Jewish leaders, well, they, they know the answer. They respond. Verse 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. He will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. The Jews get it. They understand what what has to happen. They they know what the right course of action is. Of course, these tenants have to be subdued. The owner has to have his share. That's the only right thing. Of course, they're speaking about themselves. And we discover that in the short term, they're more concerned about the crowd than about Jesus. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables and They they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Do you see the irony of of that moment? Um, The Jews hear this parable. They know it's about them. They know it's an accurate parable, and they know it's a, a just parable. But they go away, and rather than fearing the judge Jesus, the king of the world, they actually are more scared of the crowds because in the short term, the crowds are more threatening. They're more obviously able to dispose of the Jewish leaders. But this is very short-sighted because they go away and they plot to kill the king of the universe who, of course, will one day come back and judge their rebellion. The leaders reject Jesus because they're short-sighted. He is the capstone, the cornerstone, the one stone that holds the whole building together. To reject him is to miss the whole point of history. And to reject him is to be crushed and broken to pieces. And so these Jews who think that in killing Jesus, that they will have freedom, in fact, are rebelling and so will be crushed as they push away the capstone. Of course, this is not a Jewish problem, it is a human problem. Did Adam and Eve really think that rebellion against God in the garden, the God who had just made them, would that rebellion actually work? And yet they did it. People today who, who know that there is a God and yet suppress the truth about him, do they really think it will work in the long run? Well, maybe not, but in the short term, they'll give it a go. So here is the evidence of Judge Jesus as he puts these Jews on trial. And he brings it all together with his verdict, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, 
that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. This is a huge moment in history. Think of the Old Testament, how God had picked a people for himself, the the ethnic um, race of Israel, the Jews. Well, we find now at this point in history that they have turned their back on God. They have rejected him, and so God will reject them and turn away from them. In just a few decades, Jerusalem will be crushed by the Romans in AD 70. The temple destroyed and will never be rebuilt again. And we are seeing here that God's response to the Jews, and and particularly the Jewish leaders, it is a fair and just response. God's treatment of the Jews is not irrational or um, out of proportion. The Jews themselves admit that what he is doing is right. So as we sit in the gallery watching the judge at work, part of our response should be to see the, the, the rightness, the fairness of how God judges people. Completely consistent, completely fair, and very patient indeed. We should also see, sitting in the gallery, how it is possible to be part of God's kingdom. Did you notice at the end of verse 43? It's being taken away from the Jews and given to a people who will produce its fruit. In the context of Matthew's gospel, in fact, just over the page, back to Matthew 22, um, Verses 31 and 32, we discover that the people who are entering the kingdom of God, verse 31, are tax collectors and prostitutes. Remarkably, they are the people, verse 32, who are responding to Jesus in repentance and faith. They are, they're, they're believing in Jesus. And so I think the fruit that God is looking for from his people, he's not looking for sort of moral perfection or an impressive life or someone who gives to charity and recycles and pays their taxes. No, he says to the prostitutes and tax collectors, come in, you're welcome, because you repent and you believe. That's the fruit that God is looking for from his people, repentance and belief. We heard a very helpful sermon a couple of weeks ago from Rod Thomas on the previous part of Matthew 21 explaining what repentance looks like in practice. If you haven't listened to it, I commend it to you. But I would say to some perhaps here this morning who know that you've been pushing Jesus away, that you, just, you will not give your life over to him. I would say to, to you, come, turn around, change your mind regarding Jesus, repent and believe in him. And you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. That's all that he asks from you. But for those of us who have repented and believed, and I guess many of us here today would would say that about ourselves wonderfully, that we are, if you like, part of the kingdom of God, we're bearing the right fruit. As we sit in the gallery, how should we respond to this parable? And just in the last number of minutes, I want to just think this through. Romans 11, the Apostle Paul picks up this great moment in history as God turns away from the people of Israel and he welcomes in non-Jews, Gentiles, I guess most of us here today. He says in Romans 11 verse 20, don't be arrogant, you non-Jews, you Gentiles. Be very careful that you persist in your faith. Don't be like the Jews who turned away. Romans 11 verse 20. And I think that's a good word for us this morning. I want us just to lift the lid on our hearts this morning. The headline might be over our hearts. Yes, I repent and believe in Jesus. 
But what's going on beneath the surface of our hearts today? What will keep us persisting in a life that goes on repenting and believing? Not just back at a summer camp 30 years ago, but urgently and passionately today. Well, I think Matthew 21 will help us to spot some warning signs of a heart in danger of, of moving away from repentance and faith. Ungratefulness. It's possible to be a Christian who has repented and believed, but to be completely ungrateful for all that God has done for us. Uh, we start taking God for granted. We start focusing on his good gifts and not on God himself. I suspect that for many of us over the next few weeks, perhaps we're going to enjoy some holiday, some, um, a, a change of pace. I find it's very easy in holiday to, to forget the wonders of who God is and to focus on things like food and presence and family, good things. But if we forget the giver, it's easy to cultivate a heart that is not grateful. And of course, not just for presence and family and food, but also for a savior who has come into the world to die in our place, to make a relationship with God possible. And I think understanding what the Jews got wrong and instead maintaining a, a grateful heart, remembering all that God has done for us, is, is a really helpful way to make sure that our hearts go on responding in repentance and faith for a lifetime. Of course, there's also rebellion. I remember a day very recently when for some reason I woke up feeling very grumpy with everyone. Uh, I got grumpy with a dog walking her in the park. She was just too slow that morning, I don't know why. Um, I got grumpy with a person on the till at the shop for talking to the person in front of me at the queue and taking too long. I got grumpy with Lorna for no particular reason. And I remember, as I was, as I was walking along in a right grump, I remember the, the, the thought just passing through my mind. Pete, this, this grumpiness, this is not how God would have you live. And then in the next moment, just for a moment, the next thought came. And I don't care. Ever had that moment? You know what God wants from you. You just don't care. You see, as Christians, in a wonderful sense, we have turned around. We have repented and believed. But the fight goes on with our rebellious hearts. We're called to go on seeing our hearts transformed. And there will be pockets of rebellion, moments when we push against God. Actually, it's a normal thing for Christians to discover that about themselves. It's okay in some ways if we spot what's happening. In fact, it's a sign of life that we care about our sin and rebellion, that we see it happening and we care about it. But I think my point here is that if we spot those little moments and we don't care and we go on not caring and those little moments become habits and patterns that begin to dominate our lives... We are in danger of, of creating a rebellious heart which, which ends up pushing God completely away. I think of someone who didn't care about how they behave sexually. A man who um, slept with a woman who wasn't his wife and he didn't care again and again. He said he was a Christian but yet in that area he rebelled again and again and again. So often when that happens, someday the man wakes up and he says, do you know, I'm not a Christian at all. I don't care about God at all. You see, a, a habit of allowing rebellion in our hearts to go on can, can take us in a way which leads us away from Christ. Or maybe it's an issue of forgiveness. And I've seen this happen for over years when people refuse to forgive someone, even though they know Christ calls them to forgive. And they say, no, I will not forgive. 
decades later, that rebellion can breed a heart which ends up waking up one morning saying, you know what, I don't believe in God at all. We must remember that the fruit that God wants from us is repentance and belief. I'm not saying to you that we have to become perfect people or sorted Christians. I am certainly not. I got grumpy just this week. But I think this parable helps us to spot rebellion when it lurks in our hearts and to take it seriously. I guess in part it helps us remember that God does see everything. He is the king of the world. We can't just sort of compartmentalize our lives into um, you know, our giving over here and, th- and then our speech over here and then what we look at on the internet over there. And then we choose to submit in these areas, but, but not over there. God is able to see everything. And he wants the people who submit to him in every area of life. So I think Matthew 21, as we sit in the gallery, would, it would also warn us to be not like the Jewish leaders. To not carry on in our rebellious ways against the Lord, trying to seize his place in our lives. To go on repenting and believing. And as I finish, I guess my final thought is this. Why would we want to go on rebelling against this kind of God? He is so very kind. He is so very generous. He offers us wonderful care and protection. He says to prostitutes and tax collectors, come in, I don't care what you've done. I know you're messed up and broken, but there is a place for you in the kingdom of God. Come in. All has been prepared for you. He's the kind of God who would step out of the glory of heaven into the slums of earth to die on a cross for us. He is that kind of God. He is good and generous. Why wouldn't we want to submit our lives to him? Looking again at what God is like, well, it gives us a feast to satisfy the hunger of an ungrateful heart. It's a a cooling fountain to quench the fire of our rebellious hearts. It's an eternal hope to lift our gaze beyond the trials, troubles, and triumphs of our weaker heads. And when we remember what God is like, when we look at Jesus and see all that he would do for us, we discover here is a God worth following for a whole life in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge this morning that these are hard words, that the way that the judge Jesus exposes the heart of humanity, it's not easy to see, but we do recognize that what he has done is a loving thing to show us that he understands our hearts. Father, I do thank you for that wonderful offer that the kingdom of God is for people like sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, people who've messed up. We thank you that all that we have to do is to turn to repent and believe. If we've done that, Father, please help us to rejoice that we are part of the kingdom. Please help us to go on living for King Jesus, thankful for all he's done for us. And if there are some here today who have yet to turn and repent, Father, I do pray that you'd help them, even today, to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.